welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Marcus Thomas. And I'm Oz Arshad, and we are both writer directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help you bridge the gap. Yes, we're back. It's just us now. We've not got anyone intruding. We thought we'd uh, have a bit of Marcus and Oz time. It was, it's, it's good having um, guests on because it kind of... Um, what I like about it is, is that you see things from a completely different perspective. Like one of the guests that we had on, it, it did change my kind of approach to um, a couple of things. So I think what it does as well, it kind of allows us to keep learning as well, which is super helpful. And alongside that, we're throwing it out to everyone else which is what it should be. I don't think knowledge should be locked up in a dark box where only people with money can access it. That's yeah. a problem. Um, and that's why we're doing it. So Exactly. We're doing it for you. Good for them. Good for us. Learn that. Um, <laughs> Going to see how many office references we can throw in. It's how we bonded, right? Yeah. UK office, by the way, not the American one. But the American one is sick, but not the American one. Yeah. I remember, I still remember we were kind of like, we were just kind of just going through the motions, weren't we? Working with each other each yeah. each day for a couple of weeks. And then uh, as soon as one of us dropped, that we liked the office and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually annoyed to a ridiculous sort of like knowing the script back to back. Yeah, yeah. Like a disgusting level, just being able to pull out references in every single situation. And then it kind um, of evolved where we'd actually officeized the whole of the House of the Dragon. Yeah. Like we'd actually made it into, <laughs> in our heads and we had our own sort of like shorthand about how it was the office. Yeah, it reached a point where we started looking into imaginary cameras and then uh, it's, it's not very healthy, is it? No. Um, so this week we're going to tackle, it was like, what sort of subject can we tackle ourselves and kind of break things down, break down our own films and also break down cinema in some way as well and what's going to be useful. And I think an interesting thing to do is to look at tone because it doesn't make much sense, right? What is tone? I think it's one of those things that's banded around, isn't it? Willy-nilly, literally. What yeah. is it? And then they say mood, and it's like, well, which one is it? Mood? Tone? What is it? Yeah. I remember, like, one of my early films, people say, like, oh, it's got a really lovely tone to it. And it's like, what does that mean? I think in the beginning, you can do it unconsciously, and you kind of... I think as you get better at the craft of it, I think that's where it becomes, like cool, I'm going to create this this tone for this story. Uh, let's look at two definitions from two leading uh, filmmaking resources. The first one is masterclass.com. And they say, tone versus mood, what's the difference? So I'm just going to read out what they say to that question. Though tone and mood are similar in definition, in filmmaking, they are distinct. Mood refers to the, what the audience feels as they watch the film, which can change from scene to scene, Conversely, tone refers to the attitude of the filmmaker about the film subject. A consistent tone shapes the audience's overall experience of the film, which is interesting. Tone versus mood. And I think it seems like it's two separate things rather than it being a versus. They work side by side and it should almost be tone equals mood. Yes. So it's tone refers to the craft aspect in terms of how you're going to use all of the elements as a sort of art form DJ, is which I kind of see directing as. You're like an art form DJ using every single, using sound, you're using music, you're using visual image, you're using performance. How does all that work together at the same time to create a mood for uh, the audience to experience the story? And the other one? 
is Studio Binder. With Studio Binder, they, they talk about tone in relation to writing, which is the building blocks of every single film which you'll ever watch. Well, you should be. So they say that tone is the attitude that an artist has towards the subject matter of something they create. For example, if a writer writes a novel about a political election, then the tone of the story is how we presume the author feels about it. This is obviously quite subjective, but not impossible to diagnose. We're able to recognise tone by language, verbiage, context and irony. That's quite interesting because that's that's the starting point, right? As a director, if you're a jobbing director or if, or if you've written something yourself, there reaches a point where you need to interpret it. And the only way you can interpret the story visually is from reading something and I guess it's like when you read a book, right? Mm. You imagine what the characters look like. You might imagine locations and all that sort of thing. And that comes from the tone of the writing. Um, so like 1984 has a very distinct tone to its writing. It's all quite bleak and, and it feels oppressive when you're reading it. Obviously, like romantic novels have a completely different feel to them. And that leads us quite nicely into uh, actually looking at uh, writing because writing does dictate tone. And we've both picked out a couple of scripts have. that uh, speak to us tonally from the page you've chosen Ari Aster's Hereditary I have yeah and I've chosen Barry Jenkins Moonlight yeah two very different filmmakers but two very distinct tonal voices because I, I broke this script down quite recently for research purposes and I was I was kind of a bit struck by it this is page one the very beginning and I'll just kind of read the action lines interior workshop morning an impressive room serving as an artist's workshop. The evidence of frantic creative activity abounds. We pan across the wall, crossing a series of meticulously handcrafted dolls' houses, mostly works in progress. As we drift past these unfinished dioramas, our trajectory becomes clearer. We are moving in on an extraordinary sculpture of a beautiful rustic craftsman's home at one to eight scale. Its front wall has been removed, exposing its rooms in graphic tableau. This huge miniature is painstakingly detailed. It's adorned with shrunken props and decorations, flashlights, pill bottles, shoes, etc., and teensy furniture, all flawlessly rendered and distinguishable only in size from their full-scale models. We continue to pan track across the miniature, edging closer and closer as we drift along its tiny rooms. We finally arrive at a miniature replica of a teenage boy's bedroom on the second floor. We push towards this until the room fills the frame. The bright morning sun beams in through its window. It becomes apparent that a handsome, skinny boy is sleeping in the bed. This is Peter Graham, 17. We continue pushing in gently, remaining in a wide shot of the room, whose status as a miniature has now been confused. The door opens and Steve Graham, 47, tall, broad-shouldered and formal, pops his head in. He wears a black suit. All right, Petey, wake up time. I think what's striking about that is from doing more digging is that the film is actually like super horrific when you watch it like it it presents itself as quite normal minus this this intro as you're kind of going past all of these these dolls houses and you kind of land in this room and yeah it it's it presents itself almost as like uh, that aside it presents itself as like realistic um in in the way it's doing a drama but as it gets more and more horrific it's not realistic it's not realistic at all it's kind of covered in in these wide shots, in these tableaus throughout. And Ariaster himself says he kind of sees it more as a comedy. So he's kind of setting up immediately that this is not something to be, this is not reality, like inherently, because you've moved in on a doll's house and these are small characters inside a frame, kind of 
being traumatized. <laughs> so as traumatic as it gets, it's not real. What, what I got from the page as well is that, and, and I understand that, it's very clear that that, 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 that obviously having seen it, it's very clear that, and he's also luring the audience into a false sense of reality, isn't it? Because he's using words like adorned, and he's using words to describe the furniture and describe the walls in intricate detail, which suggests that the creator of that has taken a lot of time to it. And that, that, that conveys tone as well through the use of his adjectives. There's a, there's a meticulousness to the construction of the world. Um, which which says something. Yeah, because he's taken the, he's taken the time to spend that many action lines on it. In the film, it kind of tracks past all these houses, and you think you're kind of like within reality there, which you might be. And then as soon as it it goes into a doll's house, and then suddenly that's the reality which we're presented with, as that's when the actual action begins. It immediately sets up that anything can sort of happen in this film, even though what is presented, all the situations and the characters and the way they react, is sort of normal you always have the sense that something could go off or something could, could go awry because of this opening. I think that's why it's such a tonally strong film. In the language that is used there, what do you interpret as him conveying tone, like for the reader? I think it's just a very, very visual opening, even in terms of he's talking about camera moves, yeah. like slow camera moves and tableaus. This writing can sometimes be a visual document, sometimes it's not. In this case it is, and that's because it's coming from a writer-director. And I think he's talking about tableaus. The the film is, is kind of like full of them. It's covered in like long takes and tracking shots. And it's basically describing a long, um, one long single unbroken shot. And when you kind of read it, it's lots of like, especially like the, the, the scene which is most mem memorable in that, minus the gruesome stuff, is okay. the table scene where she was like, I am your mother. And that's just like pure slow building drama um people going at it that's characters sat at a table screaming at each other but because of the way it opens and the way it's it's being presented it's it suggests that it can go down a different path i think what tone is really important for is is like setting expectations of an audience about what sort of film they're going to be watching uh -huh. so a thing we used to do obsessively at film school there's a thing called opening reels where you would literally watch the first 10 minutes of a film and that's it and you'd go for it frame by frame you'd literally stop like you'd press pause and and talk about each single frame of it and what's happening and that even goes as far as when it's coming up with like universal presents and it will have like Scott Free Productions coming up over black and you can hear sound or audio or character speaking or like life happening you'll talk about the feeling that the sound is giving at that point uh, so like even before you've even seen an image of any main character or even anything like you're talking about what's happening over black and the the mind frame that puts you in as an audience because tone is already being created which is what happens on the batman you're making a promise aren't you exactly yeah in the opening of a film the audience are the most vulnerable and the most malleable uh, so i think at that point you need to let them know that they're in safe hands and you can do that in a number of ways but if you're very clear about the film which you're going to present them then it buys you a lot of goodwill um working up towards the inciting incident and 100%. Beyond, because otherwise why are they going to watch it if they don't know what they're in for you're that's not how cinema works anymore before you'd kind of you'd have a captive audience and that they would be in a dark room and it's a big statement for someone to get up and leave um so typically they would stay there and grind it out but now 
you're competing with people watching on tubes and on like streamers and stuff where they can watch anything else immediately so you need to hook people in with a very consistent message and like allow people to understand what you're trying to communicate like early doors you do that via tone really or tone is a part of it yeah Yes, it's 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 a. Uh, I mean, Ariaster is a he's a great author. I'm I'm just flicking through sort of like the later pages two and three, and he's using the same language even even on the page. Yeah. Just like how he's describing things in intricate detail, because he wants your attention to be focused on those things tonally. But in the hands of another filmmaker, it, it wouldn't. I I think it could be quite a generic film, and I don't think it would land in any way, shape, or form like as strongly as it does. It's. I think it's largely in its execution is what makes it as strong a film as what it is. Top of page three, he's got a line that says, half listening, half wincing, Annie's attention is drawn to Charlie, who makes a quiet clicking sound with her tongue. This is a tick. Just how long the sentences are, it's tone. Yeah. As a director, I guess that's what our job is to, if it's not one that we've written, we're trying to find these moments and, and, and really trying to understand the tone so that we can visually interpret it. Exactly that. Okay, so let's let's move on to uh, Moonlight. And I'll just read the first paragraph. First, over black, we hear the sound of the ocean, then fade in. External, 58th Street Terrace, 30th Avenue Day. A bright Miami day, or what we can see of it, our gaze fixed, looking into the front windshield of a wide vintage car. Think 60s, American. At the wheel, find a Juan, 30s, some sort of Afro-Latino thing about him, pulling towards us and coming to a stop. Behind him, a shady, rundown apartment building abuts the road, three boys standing outside. Juan cuts the engine, exits the car and begins across the street. The boys tense up as Juan approaches, makes room as he continues all the way over to the brick wall behind them. And then Juan says, Business good? One of the boys, Terence, 18 dreadlocks and rail thin, bows his chest to speak. That, like, is, there's just so much, so much there. Yeah. You know, just drawing a parallel between him and Ari, the tone is evident in how they're describing things that they want your attention to be drawn to. And I think that you're right, that this is because, you know, the reader slash audience are forgiving in the the early stages. And I think that, you know, the tone is really, really clear about who he is, about his kind of like position as well in the world that he's, that, that he's introduced us to. Um, the other people, there's clearly clearly a hierarchy, and I love as well, like you know, the way when he says uh, Terence, and he describes Terence eighteen dreadlocks and rail thin, like mm. he could just say mm. skinny, but yeah. he hasn't. He's yeah. chosen to say rail thin. That's tone. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it, it's it's well, what does that mean given given the the, the the picture that you've painted of the scenario that that we're reading? And it's building character as well through contrast, right? Where yeah. It's, it, they've taken he's taken the time to describe the car like a vintage car like what sort of person owns a vintage car and with that against the backdrop of the world which he's described as well like what's so, and the and the people who are kind of there like if someone's skinny like it makes you think of someone who could be potentially like malnourished or do you know what i mean or like not well fed like harking exactly. back to um like weight being a sign of strength <laughs> like it's one of those right there's immediately a contrast between the character who we're following uh. and who he's going to speak to there's that immediate contrast in status and power like right off the bat and then with that there's the whole over black the sound of the ocean like yeah. seeding something in which is like slightly more ethereal i just want to say as well from a writing thing we've just read two opening pages from two fantastic screenwriters uh, i think i think they were both nominated barry jenkins won the oscar 
and they both use we can see or we see we move because i know sometimes yeah. i think oh you can't use the word we massive faux pas and it's like no you, you know we're not it's not a novel it's it's a visual document it's a blueprint yeah that needs to be then shot so it has to have that because you're directing the attention of the audience and the audience are we the way i see it is that the, a script is a way of communicating to someone like what the story is and as long as the the reader understands what you're trying to get across then it doesn't matter how you get that across ultimately in terms uh. of the words which you use i think the formatting is important for for timing and and like industry reasons but the little intricacies of how you communicate that as long as it makes sense and is consistent uh, there's freedom to communicate what i like about barry's work is he's, he's quite poetic in how he uses his adjectives like he's put like just on the same page one he put juan just nodding his head at terence uh, looking at the ground stretching before them kind of day where phosphorus fumes wave above the asphalt i just really really like that you can it's quite visceral and i think that that's yeah, it's texture isn't it yeah it adds texture to the world yeah and that's tone if i was going to shoot i'd be like right and i, I kind of know what that day needs to feel like and then from there that dictates to you the the, the feel that dictates you the colors the saturation it, it dictates the color grade as well there, there is so much you can interpret as a director and they're entirely different films as well right like the tonally is very different between both let's look at a couple of our examples as well so let's start with the retreat yeah because that is something that i think for you was really strong for tone um and it's got such a um distinct tone to the it. retreat is is something i created with with a writer I, I developed it it's the um it's the first thing i've made which i haven't ever which i haven't written myself so that was kind of part of the challenge of doing it was was to do that because when you're working in tv or even further on like to write something from the beginning to shoot it to edit it to release it it can take like five years like especially at like the tv or film level and i don't want to be working every five years <laughs> I, like i will make six films in my entire 30 year career so that's not something i'm interested in so i think to be able to develop work and and to keep the convey about going so i can work every two or three years you have to develop stuff and yeah with the retreat a lot of my examples that i looked at it was based on it's basically a, a revenge film and some of my favorite films are based on revenge so i was looking at like blue ruin um old boy i saw the devil like just all yeah any film that was about revenge and funny games as well which is not about revenge but tonally i just i, I love it's sort of got like a playful tone as dark as what it is and I think that's just something I really wanted to dig down into was to present something which is inherently ridiculous, but treat it with the utmost seriousness. Because mm. I remember in the earlier drafts with with the writer, there was moments of humor in it. And mm. I had to keep saying, well, I said it a few times, like, um, this is the most serious film that we're ever going to make. Mm. Um, I guess the setup is that it's it's set on a shadowy retreat that uses revenge as a form of therapy. Um, and so the scenario is ridiculous but for me I always wanted to ground it in reality so the thought was that I wanted to create something where you couldn't quite place what time period it existed in you wouldn't be able to deny if it's real or not that uh. was the ultimate goal and the way we did that was like by building it around the setting so the ho I mean the film is called The Retreat so it was looking at anywhere which is kind of secluded and away from civilization. I didn't want to see any any buildings in the backgrounds of any shots or any cities, okay. nothing like that. It needed to feel like it was up somewhere high. Um, 
or up in the secluded countryside and ultimately like we were kind of blessed around Beaconsfield in that um, there's lots of fielded sort of areas around like the Chiltern Hills and stuff Um, so we kind of started wandering around there and my cinematographer like pulled pulled somewhere out and we kind of went there it was like an old opera like it's it's basically like a rich person's farm um and but they've got like a massive barn and Mm. the barn looks amazing and looking behind it it's got like a massive hill behind it so it looks Mm. like it's up on a mountain if you shoot in a certain way but if you turn the other way it's just country roads and all around the area there are 17th century historically listed barns and all around it it's exactly the same so as we was just driving through i was i saw like another like a farmhouse i was like should we just go up there and have a look and then literally like we just knocked on the door of this one house Uh. and i was like um and we just like started a conversation with the old lady there she was like 90 um Uh. and we said what we wanted to do make a film and stuff and she's like oh yeah we've had a few films here before and i think weirdly enough i'm pretty sure that the place where we shot all of our interiors which was at this old lady's house is the same place where they shot last night in soho when um thomas and mackenzie leaves home there's like an exterior Uh shot and i'm pretty sure it's the exact same house um Uh and yeah they kind of shoot silent witness and things like that around there um and yeah it was a case of like this this house it hadn't been touched at all um as i said like the lady was about like 90 and it was it used to be like a functioning farm and all of the wallpapers and stuff like in the house hadn't been touched or changed or anything for years and years and years. All of the furniture was like great, and, but you couldn't quite place it. So literally it was a case of once we had that, it it grounded everything. We just worked off of that um, in terms of costume, making sure the costumes were all sort of like um, earth tones and matched the palette um, within the home for the interiors and stuff. And it was, it was just growing out from there, really. I, I know it's not, I know it's not a folk horror but obviously the, the location, you know, with it being secluded, it's really, really important that the audience, that's communicated to the audience so that they can they can take that tone so that you're right, not having any contemporary buildings in the skyline, in the horizon, is, is, is really, really important because that, that feeds again into your tone. I can't remember at what point I decided it, but I, it's either on the second or third draft of the script, I just wrote 4-3 on it. I don't know why that was. I really yeah. don't. But it just... it it's what just felt natural to me because I think if we was to shoot it in like a conventional aspect ratio, which aspect ratios I wasn't even really aware of until I got to the film school, it's something I learned about. So I think that's aspect ratio is, is kind of like the, it's about like the size of the frame. Yeah. So four, three is more of like a bit boxy. And I think what I wanted to do with that was to limit the perspective of the audience onto the main character so that if you're focusing on a face, you can't see the sides of the image to see where a threat could be coming from. I wanted uh. I wanted the, the main character to feel very restricted and I wanted it to feel like there could be dark shit going on beyond the edges of the frame, essentially. It was it was a way of heightening the horror. And also it was a way of it was a way of taking it away from reality. Cause like we're used to watching things in like a widescreen aspect ratio and things on our TV and and such. Whereas I think with this aspect ratio four three, it's more traditional with like period films potentially. Um, and because this film, you can't quite place the time period. I think then it creates a feeling of, okay, it's, 
it's not reality and then it creates a suspension of disbelief in the audience so like they can buy into the ridiculous scenario which I was setting up and these are all things which work on a psychological level and it's all instinctual for me but it again it creates that mood right so when people see it they're like it it creates an unease yeah um one of your projects curfew can you give us like a little bit of a description about that and and how you crafted that from the ground up because it's a project you wrote as well right yeah yeah it was so it was a parent in it was a parent and child um story ultimately this kind of like detachment between the parent and the child and they've got their own problems going on but they and they can't really work with each other and then there were two specific references that i kept going to for tone and one was pursuit of happiness and the other one was um boyhood I wanted to kind of merge those tones with the British grittiness as well. And yeah, a lot of that had to come with the with the costume and, and just making sure that everybody had like muted colours on and everywhere was muted and there was nothing that was really, really bright everywhere visually. There wasn't a lot of dialogue between characters, but whatever it is that was said, it was centred around a lot of silent action. And that's what I kind of wanted to do. And again, that was the tone that I wanted because I wanted people to just watch it get a bit of verbal information and watch it and yeah in my in my mood board i did have both pursuit of happiness boyhood but then i also had um fish tank or i daniel blake and linking sort of like this this thing about the psychological effect on a person's brain depending on what they're looking at is definitely what governed the choices i made with curfew um and also from what ian celebrate taught us about you know image systems and you know what is going on in the first frame and I remember one of the films that I watched back in the day and then he actually broke it down for us. Actually, Louis Arnold was there as well, actually. And it was Bullet Boy. And I really liked the way Bullet Boy started where it had Ashley Walters in a um, in a prison cell, but it was shot from outside through the glass. So you just didn't know which side of the glass he was actually mm. on until it became apparent he was actually on the cell side and not the other side. I kind of, because my story was about a father who'd come out of prison, I really liked that that motif. And I, I use that as a recurring theme visually in it to kind of um, do what you're saying, which is um, psychologically have that effect on the audience um, where you don't know if he's still in prison or yeah. not, or, or, or whether he is. And and then and then how his daughter kind of ends up being on that same kind of shot. So it's like she he's brought her into his kind of like prison because he is, he's got a tag on and he's, in, he's technically still in prison. Because I think what, what made Curfew interesting is that it, there's, there's different ways to attack it and this is why every director is different but I think other directors could have just played it as a social realism piece but it almost feels like it has like thriller elements to it <laughs> in, it, in its tension of of the device of of countdown I need to be at home by a certain amount of time else promotion are going to take me to back to jail it's interesting you said that yeah because that was that was I, I did want it to feel like a thriller um those bits but there was a couple of bits where I sort of like tonally didn't lean too much into it but there was a couple of horror bits so there's a bit where the phone's ringing and, and the electricity's gone. Basically, the curfew uh, call centre ringing why he's not logged in at a certain time. Um, when, 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 the, when the machine uh, is too far from the tag, it can alert automatically the, the people and send coppers out to you. And so what we did was we had the phone on the wall. Again, it was production design. It wasn't a real phone. Um, and I wore a really shit phone as well, which is what we got. Anna Baldini was the production designer on it. And she had sourced this like this this wired phone, but then we had the camera push in on the phone. And it was almost horrory because it was dark as well. Because the sound design in it, and we knew what was going on, it didn't feel tonally horror, but you could see that there was something ominous about that phone call and the way the camera pushed in at the same time. That this is some sort of a threat, 
and like what you're saying, which is it, which is a theme in some of your stuff about the threat of screen. Yeah, it's yeah. I, I guess with the retreat, it it worked because we decided every shot to be largely still. So I think the camera moves twice in the entire film, um, and that was a conscious choice of just to allow it to be like an exercise in where to place the camera because I always put a lot of effort into it. And I think if you have to move the camera, it's usually because the camera is in the wrong place. <laughs> it can be anyway. I think we spoke about this the other day was was about Paul Thomas Anderson. As he's gone on, he started off with Boogie Nights and Hard Eight and stuff with long tracking shots. But as he's gone on to like the Phantom Fred and things, like it's, his visual language has just become much, much simpler and more restrained. So... It's, it was a case of like um, looking at my influences. Uh, there's a film I love by Kim Ki Duck called um, Free Iron, and he has everything in static frames. Even though the character moves without it, he'll just like have another static frame pick them up somewhere else rather than and just allows it to just play out. Um, and so I think that's something I wanted to exercise with with this, so that the characters move within it, and then it creates a sense of place and you can be very, very deliberate about what you're showing. And then you can use audio to fill in the gaps outside of that. If if it's important to see stuff outside of that frame. That brings us nicely onto production and how you think about tone in production. And obviously that is all down to communicating tone to your HODs. And if we do start, you know, you're talking about camera movement. If we start with the DP, you know, you have to have the conversation about light in camera movement because restrained camera movement on non camera movement it does make you feel a way about it and obviously there's a proximity to how far you are away from the characters so that if they're going to walk and block from left to the right of the screen if there is a real sort of camera movement that's about how far you are from them um whereas if you're right close you've got a bigger distance to pan across and that was that was one thing that was clear in retreat that you definitely had the camera restraint except for that one shot but even that felt quite restrained because it was on a white it was, it was on quite a wide lens right yeah yeah so there's 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 like two moments when the camera moves so one is when it's like a bit of an interrogation scene where the person who runs the retreat is antagonizing the protagonist ironically to kind of build up the sort of strength to do a murder essentially uh, or get revenge and when she walked in there we were kind of like thinking about where to place the camera it felt clunky to have them like standing and then kind of pan down with them like there was no way to have them walking then land in the frame without panning with them and so it felt like a a time to pan down and have them in a high angle as they're being told to get on their knees by someone much stronger than them it just felt like it made sense and what happens is when because the the visual language of the whole film is so restrained that when you have a camera movement it means more um and so that moment sticks out and then the other moment is is just as she's kind of gotten the motivation to to then go and attack the situation which is to go and get revenge we just follow on follow the main character in one long unbroken steadicam shot which is the most movement we have in it but it's completely motivated because it follows the main character but it's it's been earned almost yeah and and then and, and also that comes down to um Lighting as well, like when I did curfew, um, the DP, you know, I just said very clearly, I want, I want the, I want the light to, to make it to look like it comes from whatever's around there. And if there's not much light, then we don't have much light. It, it is what it is. I, I didn't want it to be too bright because to me, tonally, that was going to shift the tone. So I was like, in the dark bits, I just want minimal light, but just enough there so that 
if someone's going to watch it, they're not going to have that horrible artifact that you get when it's too dark. I think there's, there's like a balance to be struck, isn't there? So like you've, you've, you've kind of like set up the expectations for the audience. So like for you, for you, for you, it's, it's kind of like a sense of, of the lighting and things like that. And for me, it was like still camera movement and, and these sorts uh. of things so that you have to be really careful about like respecting that and acknowledging what you're actually doing with, with the tone so that when you break it, you break it for a reason. Right. So like just a reference earlier when you were saying about the, the horror moment um, with the, with the phone, like uh. you can't just throw on horror music. No. You can kind of, you can only hint at the threat and kind of do it within the confines of the tone which you've created. Otherwise it's going to feel melodramatic or just be out of the blue. And then it might make 100%. an audience kind of jump back and be like, this isn't, I'm confused. If you make a promise to the audience, you've got to fulfill it by keeping that same tone. You've got an agreement. Yeah. Um, and if you are going to break it, then it's got to be still broken within the confines of what that expectation yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tonally. It's a very delicate balance, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, Marvel kind of pissed people off sometimes because tonally they'd go too comedic and undermine the drama of what's going on uh, in, in some of the stuff, in some of the films that they've done, and you'd hear the rants and Reddit threads or whatever. And that's just because they've broken, they've broken the expectation. They're almost like not serious now, right? Like there's Taika Waititi, what he's done with the four series, like it was refreshing with the third one, but I think that gave him too much creative license for the fourth and it alienated a lot of the audience. Not necessarily, I've not seen it, but not necessarily because it's good or bad, but just because there's an expectation with the tone of Marvel films, which is set up across the entire slate, it kind of breaks and falls outside of that, which the fans know it for. And that is tone. Yeah. And it's the same with um, when Ryan Johnson did the second new Star Wars, like tonally what Luke Skywalker does at the end like he obviously he did a lot of his own thing on there. I think people were just like, "No, this is our you know we're the fans. This is our IP yeah. now. You can't just bring your thing into it and change it to what you think it should be because you're a cool filmmaker yeah. with what expectations." And that really pissed people off. It can cause a lot of anger, especially around like IP, which people care a lot about. And I guess we've kind of like made a note of like the DC universe as well, right? Because uh, it's interesting to in a contrast to Marvel, which is very consistent tonally, like almost jumping off from the Iron Man films, really. It's it's very consistent, minus like a few outliers, like the Hulk film. Um, but yeah. it's, it's very, very consistent. Whereas like DC, I think they've been trying to craft their own sort of like style, which I think at its least successful is like a darker color graded version of a Marvel film which I don't think is is great. But then when they've done more interesting stuff, it's because they've actually given the filmmakers license to do dark stuff, like the Joker, which Marvel could never do. Like Marvel, as it stands, cannot go and make a film like Joker, like full stop. No. Because it's no. so far different from everything else they've set up, their entire fan base and machine, which they've kind of created. It's in contrast to that. Whereas DC, because of The Dark Knight, which is a grounded superhero film you can create like outlying single singular sort of like base stories which has its own sort of tone um and can veer into darker territory and still work and now they've kind of done it where they've got the more light-hearted stuff or the comedic stuff tonally they've got it separated to the more kind of grounded darker 
tonal stuff. So if you look at Joker and the Batman, they are tonally different, but they're both very grounded. Now they've brought in James Gunn to start doing his stuff, but they're not in the same, they're not the same thing. Yeah. And it and it works. You know, it's like, okay, that's that, that's that. Whereas Marvel would kind of do, their, their tone wasn't as dark as what Joker is and it wasn't as dark as what ba- the Batman is. Um, so they've got that license to shift the needle to have a joke here and there. Yeah. But if you shift the needle too much, it can jar the audience and piss them right off. Yeah, because it's interesting, right? Because there's um, Todd Phillips, the person who, who directed like The Hangover and, and Joker. He almost like wanted to pitch it as like a, a sort of dark cinematic universe within DC, which unsurprisingly they weren't on board with. <laughs> um, and, but I think... DC could get away of doing that and it would it'd give space for interesting filmmakers to make interesting work with comic book stories, which is something Marvel can't do. And I think if you're doing that, I think it, it would have more longevity than, say, a Marvel thing because I think we're at the point now where people don't really know the character or don't have an affinity with the characters which Marvel are putting out and the tone is the same. So I, I don't see how that can be sustained for another 10 years, to be honest, um, at the rate in which they're putting them out. But DC can kind of do what they like and keep making it interesting. But and I also think that's because the world shifted and the zeitgeist is different. The world is fucked. So you know um, <laughs> those dark stories. You know where it's just almost post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. We're kind of in that now. So it, pre-apocalyptic. It, it, you know that that works. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-apocalyptic. Yeah. Um, depends in it if the pandemic was the apocalypse yeah, yeah, yeah. or not. Oh yeah, we're out of that um, one. We're in the next one now. Yeah, we're in the next one now, yeah. Apocalypses. Um, whereas lighthearted, hopeful, Marvel things like that is like, nah, that's not our reality. Our fucking bills to pay. Yeah, mate. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when you look at fucking Robert Pattinson scarred in the way that he walks and moves and he's carrying fucking the weight of the world in his eyes, it's like, yeah, I relate more to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Same with Joker, like orchestrating yeah. the downfall of society, like being conduit for it. And people like turned out in droves to watch it because they relate to to that sort of thing happening, like a chaos merchant. And anarchy, you know, activism now, you know, like people like to label that shit anarchy, and it it definitely is tethered to the zeitgeist yeah. of what's going yeah. on and the culture that's going on. I don't know if that's specifically to do with tone, but how you interpret that is tone because you're taking the sentiments and the feelings of people, which is down to mood and tone. Yeah. And putting that into there to resonate with how they are at the moment. Well, even just by like existing within this time period, right? It's going to affect your perspective and your taste and things. If that's yeah, how you're feeling, because yeah. you're caught in this moment, your art is going to reflect that. So I think it, it could definitely like fart its way out as being tone, like somehow, whether you like it or not. Um, and also performance governs tone as well. Yeah. How did you craft performance, I'd say, with, with uh, Curfew? Like, what were you looking at? Because it's, it's difficult to get two people on the same page, two actors on the same page anyway, but you had a father and a daughter. So how, uh, did, you, how did you create um, that story, performance-wise? I just made sure that the dialogue they had was quite minimal, and then that allowed you to, you know, just watch them and their body language and interactions, you know, that, that, that's not necessarily from the dialogue. And I remember there was a bit where one of the actors was the, the, one of the scenes in the shop. So I remember I said to the actor, I said to her, I don't want you to have any emotion at all. And you're hiding your emotion, almost poker faced. But what she was saying was actually really emotional and it was really like hard. Yeah. And the reason that that felt right to me was because of the tone. 
Whereas if she'd have delivered it overly expressive in the body language, I just felt that that tonally would have would have taken away from what what had been established throughout. Um, and even with the um, lead actor Carl, like he was just brilliant in just understanding what to do in the silences mm. and 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 how and how to behave in the silences, and that really helped the tone as well. I think that's what it is actually. I didn't think about this at the time, but now looking back at it, I guess to summarise it is is restraint in how much emotion they showed. That's that's important itself, right? There's a whole thing around people say like that, like mumblecore uh, sort of yeah. filmmaking things like that, which is associated with indies where characters just they're sort of like almost like Atlanta, sort of like just super natural, and and that's that's a creative choice. Whereas you some forms of theatre, they could be huge and emotional and. These are things, everything in between, these are things you kind of need to think about and how it translates from the story which you're trying to tell. I think one of the things that I've realised about myself recently as I've directed more is I really like naturalistic performances. It doesn't matter what the setting is or what the spectacle is, I just love naturalistic performances, almost documentary-like. There's a thing, it's, it's like, how do you ground your audience, right? Like, how do you do yeah, that? Because the yeah. audience are always thinking in line with a protagonist, potentially, or all the characters yeah. so if they alienate the audience through the way they're performing then they're not going to be with them and then that's a problem especially no. if they're, they're acting like someone big and emotive in if everyone else is sort of like more quiet and like it's full of silence it's going to stand out unless you're using that performance as a way of saying something it's everything's a choice right speaking of choices and silences how did it work on the retreat because um, Aniki, who was very talented, did a fantastic job. You know, there was so much that she brought to it without actually saying a word. Yeah. So a lot of the, the frames are just like on her face and she's brilliant. And I knew I wanted the opening of the film to play out in like succinct takes. Um, so there's like the opening of the film is three shots. It's a little boy, it's her face, and then it's the leader of the retreat and it ends. And I had to craft that there on the day it was the first thing we shot and that was literally a case of hearing the actors perform it and I asked the script supervisor to time the takes because each page is like a minute right um on the script I think it was roughly around like a page a page of writing so I was like cool in terms of pacing of the whole story if this goes beyond like maybe like a minute 20 then this is all going to be too long I got Aniki to do her her like monologue about how she's feeling and why she wants to join this retreat. It was coming out too long or she was kind of, it was too wordy um, and too long. And so I cut lines out and I was like, say this, say this, say this, say this and take as much time as you need. So it was like really simple. So other than time and that was also a tone thing, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was to craft this opening so it could play out in the yeah. shot of the boy. Aniki's looking at the boy which has like the dark brooding sort of atmosphere over it. And then we cut to her, we kind of then more pop into reality. She says how she's feeling and why she wants to join this place. And then after that, we see who she's speaking to. It cuts to the leader of the retreat. We can help you with that. And it's really that sort of simple. It was, it was a way of kind of like grounding the audience with the main character immediately, understanding the problem visually and also allowing them to see that this is going to plow in like long, slow, like unbreaking takes throughout the the whole thing. And that was just the way I shaped it. And, and even as well, like hair and makeup is so important. You know, the fact that Aniki in Retreat 
has her head tied back throughout. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She does. She does. Even in um, in curfew, like I pretty much kept the girl's hair tied back throughout, mm. and I kept the makeup as much as as much of it as natural as possible. I know Niki did as well. Like maybe she had a bit of base on. I don't know, but. It was very much nat natural. There was nothing yeah. on there. It was about just being tired. I find because I do it with my top knot. Like I don't let my hair down much, <laughs> and it's yeah. a, it's like a quick fix. So it was a case of like she's at that point where it's like nothing really matters other than the grief that they're feeling. So like yeah. it's not about makeup. It's not about any of that. It's just how can they just exist and hair back just be very simple um, yeah. and and just exist really. Even though that is from character, if you'd have had her where, you know, she might have had a makeover done in the morning and had her nails done, for example, in the character, that would have felt off. Yeah. Visually, yeah. tonally, it felt off. The audience would been like, why? You know? Yeah. And that, that comes down to tone as well. I think costume and, 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 and hair and makeup, when you first start, is easy to overlook. It's so important, though. Yeah, yeah. massively. The costume as well, massively. Yeah. Because all of this is really a reflection of how you see yourself. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've said it before. I, I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm very much a pajama top person at the moment. Yeah. You know, what I mean, that's just how I'm feeling, and that's how it is. Because this is it's a, it's a reflection of how I am. I'm just I'm just too busy to be thinking about right. I can wear this shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It also, I guess, like with the retreat, it was thinking about because everything, all of the locations, there were 17th century barns, so it was all like blacks and browns and like earth tones. And so it was making sure, like, if there was even, like, to talk about the grade, the some of the characters were in jeans. And because the jeans were blue, they were standing out. So we had to, like, dial them back so they were kind of more faded in the grade because otherwise they popped. It created too much colour against everything else. You have to kind of think in terms of costume how... Just think about the image in terms of colours, like, how um. how you're crafting that. Are you adhering to what you're setting up? And then if you're breaking the tone, you're doing it for a reason. So like if a character was wearing a red top amongst that, it would say something really, really like important and bold um, in the way like the, the girl in the red coat and Shinda's list, like the whole thing's yeah. black and white, but there's a girl in a red coat and that's what everyone remembers in the film because he chose to break the tone for a very specific reason. Quick thing about the performance thing, like in the Batman, Matt Reeves, you know, made Robert Patterson move in a certain way. And made him deliver the lines at a certain speed, yeah, um, so that it fed the tone. Yeah, it's everything. It is everything, um, and it's something to be very sort of uh, clear on. But it reveals itself to you as you make it as well. Like uh, you can have a sense of it, and you can work towards it. But it's a case of crafting it through every single discipline, right? And so, how did you go about that with the edit? Would you say, um, like finding the story and and the pace of it and things? I was fortunate. I had a very, very experienced retired editor on. When he first did the assembly, he just cut it together without sort of like having long takes or this, that and the other. And then when we got into it, he made it clear like how much time I wanted to give to each cut and how much of that rhythm of that pay, of that editing sort of like dictated how the audience were taking the information. I kind of learned on that one, to be honest. I learned as I went along with mm. that one um, about, about how cuts influence the tone as well. If there's like more space in the frame like more time on a shot it gives the audience more time to think right so if you're doing that then you need to think why are you making them think have you just done some is there been like a heavy moment which you kind of want to allow that space for the audience or 
-hmm. doesn't need to be faster paced because you're it's a chase sequence or something like that or, or characters in a rush like that it's creating that rhythm which which will kind of like build the tone right and especially for you, it's a thriller. You created a thriller, essentially. So how much did you realize you yeah. were making a thriller? Yeah, I think on that I was. Yeah, just going back to what you were saying about about the retreat that you were making a promise to the audience about long takes. Mm. How much? Do you know how many cuts there are in it? I don't. I don't. But I know, like, I've, I feel like the average shot length will be quite long <laughs> across mm, it. Mm. Yeah, because just throughout there might be a shot that will last like 30 seconds and that's just kind of normal but it's a, it's a heavy tone though because it's grief and you need to hear like to me sound design is really important in, in stuff like that in grief i mean it's similar to like in after sun there's so many there's so many long takes where you're just hearing the atmosphere yeah yeah and and, and obviously you've got that in retreat as well where you've got that long i don't know it just does something it does something to you as a viewer yeah it it kind of respects your your intelligence it's like theater right like with when you're watching a play the audience has the complete ability to look around and make their own interpretation and think where's the best place to look at what time and so i think if you're presenting a presenting a frame and it's longer i think fair enough your perspective is there because you're presenting the frame but the audience still has the ability to look around it and mm -hmm. and kind of feel so there's a bit of that going yeah. on like Steve McQueen, there was a thing when I was obsessed with Steve McQueen and just kind of digging into his work. I think he, he calls it like obliterating the frame. Whenever he does a long take or holds on a shot, he calls it obliterating the frame because it, it yeah. then become it doesn't even become about a frame anymore. It becomes everything within it and oh. it transcends. You can have people walking in and out and it, you kind of imagine a world outside of it. Yeah, because in, in, in that scene in... Shame, not shame. What's this? What's there's, it called? The twelve-minute scene. There's hunger, which is like in hunger. Like Seventeen minutes of just two people speaking at a table. Yeah. But you do imagine the rest of the room because mm. you want it that long, and and the sound design obviously helps with that as well in that in that space. So you get a sense of how big that room actually is. And suddenly, it doesn't become about the thing which is happening. It, like you can wonder. It's it's a really interesting practice. I'm just thinking, like, if you can. You know, if you were to imagine now, like someone watching, or even saying, "I'm going to shoot a 17-minute take, just with the camera locked off," other than other than artists, other than for people like us, I don't know if the general public—not that I'm I'm making assumptions about the general public—but we are so conditioned from TV, as in cut, 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 cut. If they could even have the patience for that, yeah, because they don't even move. It's literally like you've got to know what's going on in the film to actually appreciate that moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like Sam Mendes is with 1917. And like I guess in Eritu of Birdman, like they're long shots, but it's choreographed movement to give the feeling that it's scenes of been seen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 more like theatrical rather than it is just presenting a still shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a very very brave way to to tackle it. And yeah, from the commentaries and interviews and stuff, he had to fight them a bit to do it. Did, yeah, did yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. He he shot it. And then I think there was arguments about you need to get coverage, you need to get coverage. I think he started shooting one close up and fucking hated it. And then he's like, I'm not doing it anymore and just left it. And then he became Stephen Queen. And now no one will, if he wants to do a 17 minute take, he can do, he can do it if he wants and people just yeah. leave him to it. Um, but because he was a first time filmmaker, there was like, what is this guy doing? I mean, there are some brilliant things in that frame, like the way they're smoking and the lights going through the smoke. Yeah. Like the, that, that's really fucking interesting, you know, because 
when you when you look at that thing, you, you're gonna analyze everything in the frame, yeah. aren't you? I, I think hunger is a masterpiece, man. Like I think it's brilliant, just because of the even the narrative structure. Like you spend the opening of the film with different characters, and you only meet the main character, uh, Michael Fassbender, when a note is passed to him, and it's just yeah, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, like, that's so brave as as like a creative choice to to tackle a story in that way. And the dirty protest they were doing as well was just mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can only say like the dirty protest thing. There's like a massive. There's like a long pan 360 around the whole room. You yeah. like you can only do that shit if you set up the language. Like if you're doing it like starting it off and it's fast steady cam shots and shot reverse shots of conversations and things like that. If you then do something like that, it might be jarring to the audience. Like what this is superfluous. Like the the filmmakers just having a wank on us for for no reason. Like. That's not um, what it is, uh, right? Like you have to set up the language so then you can then adhere to it and either break it or or continue to play with it. And a lot, a lot of what we're talking about here is with respect to film. Of course, in TV, you've got you, you've got a tone that's established, and, and and then you have to feed into that as a director. But a lot of a lot of tone is is is, is in film. There's stuff you can do in film that you cannot do in TV. There's no chance. Yeah. You would be allowed to fucking do a long fucking pan for 30 seconds yeah i think like chernobyl might be one of the few times i've seen something like like the moment on the bridge i was like uh, that's not very tv like and i think there's elements uh, of thrones right where there, there's moments of in that where you're like okay that's i've not seen that done in tv before so it's it's changing uh, it is changing but the the best stuff does have its own sort of tone usually in the writing but um, so like yeah, I've been watching Happy Valley, so that's in the forefront of my mind. But that has its own clear yeah. tone, right? From and that comes from the writing and performances. But everyone knows mm. what Game of Thrones feels like, and House of the Dragon and Game of Thrones feel like they're part of the same piece. But that's because of a world and a tone that's been created. I think just j- j- just rounding it off, I think that you know when when filmmakers are making shorts, even when we're making shorts, one of the things that you know we try and do, and it's probably the next phase of what I'm doing is making sure that I'm really clear or trying to convey the type of tone that's attached to my voice. Yep. Now, I don't know what that is. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm going to do this, this and this, but just being conscious of all those controls that you've got and those levers as a director and making sure that they all sort of like align best you can yeah. and hope that it pull, pulls off. Yeah, because it's, it's the way in which you communicate that to all of your HODs and like your heads of departments, uh, like that would be your your editor, your your cinematographer, your production designer, costume, to make sure you're all making the same film. Because that, that is the thing I learned at film school as well, for sure, is that you need to make sure that everyone is making the same film. And that comes from communication and also references and visual materials. If not, everyone is not on board, they ha- they will all have a completely different interpretation of what that looks like. So like, that's yeah. why when you're reading these scripts and it's very clear what's going on tonally, you can kind of see the same sort of thing but everyone has their own interpretation of of what a dilapidated building looks like or what a rail fin person looks like based on their own experiences and their own perspective and their own taste so you need to make sure as a director that you're communicating that vision clearly nugget of the week nugget of the week interesting so i just dug out um uh, something i watched the other night on youtube which is a channel it's got like two thousand subscribers it's called you can create and it features Denis Villeneuve and how to succeed in filmmaking and what was interesting about it was just it's a clip from an interview you may or may not have heard, heard it already but 
it was basically him saying, I can only make the films which I make. If you want to hire someone to tell your story the way you want it to be done, there are 5,000 directors in Hollywood who would be really, really, really happy to be working and to deliver exactly what you want them to do. So you'll be happy, they'll be happy, everyone gets paid, great. But if you want me, I can only do what I can do. So hire me for what I'm going to do or don't. And that's the only way I can be an artist. I was like, I fucking respect that because that's kind of it. There's there's a balance to it in terms of like sometimes you need to make money, blah, 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 blah. He can do that because he's yeah. the evil nerve and he's further on, etc., etc., etc. He knows what he is and he knows the films that he makes in his taste. Um, but it it's always that balance about at what point do you have to pay the bills and kind of do the work and at what point do you kind of dig your heels in and you are like, actually, this is what I'm good at? Because would you get Yorgos Lanthimos to direct Home and Away? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, because they're very, they're, they're very specific auteurs, aren't mm. they? They're very specific. Yeah. My nugget of the week actually was going to be something else, but I've just changed it now. And I think it's going to be, um, don't be a knobhead. <laughs> um, so when I went to, uh, when I walked into my uni yesterday, um, just by chance when I got through the the lady that's just started on the admin team she was just covering reception and she goes us and it was somebody who reached out to me just called on Instagram during the pandemic and I, and I replied back to him and um it's uh, two filmmakers from Bournemouth who, who came up to up north together to kind of like try and they didn't want to go to London they thought we'll come to Manchester and meet some filmmakers they basically just DM'd people called uh, and I was one of them, and I replied back to him. Anyway, we ended up like working together. And uh, Mo, who um, is the the writer, is a writer director duo. Uh, I got her to you know do some first drafts on some of the stuff that I worked on, like the refugee film that I've done. Yeah, she was there, and I'm not seen her in about two years. Then when I went upstairs, there was a guest guest director who was a lecturer at coming for the day, and he was the director I'd shadowed on a show two months ago. I just thought to myself, and you said it when I she said, "Can you imagine if you were a knobhead?" Yeah, like how the, how those two things would have just like blown up in your face. And it's like, yeah, and it's so important that you, this industry, this industry is so small, it's unreal. Yeah. You could be in Australia if there's a film thing going on, you and and you've been on the circuit, you'll probably know someone that's on the crew. Yeah. And bad news travels fast. People's talk, and it's so important um, to be good human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sh- it shouldn't take that anyway, but it's no. It's one of those, isn't it? Where like, unfortunately, some people, it, as you said, it's a high pressure environment, and it can either bring out the best or worst in people. And I've I've kind of been on various sets where there's various sorts of moods going on, and it's always better, calmer, better work when it's all transmitting from the top, and the what's being transmitted is is calmness and good vibes. Because otherwise you're dragging people kicking and screaming. Top down. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing of the film industry at large. And we're going to do our best to tell you. We want to shape this as a resource for you. So do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the director's take podcast. And also on Twitter, which is at director's take Lots of conversations going on there. And leave us a review on whichever platform you get your podcast from. So until next time, keep learning, keep failing, and keep the faith.